Okay, the book of Isaiah, what makes the book of Isaiah unique, special, different? Of course, it's the first of the what we would call the major prophets, and then we have the, the minor prophets following. But what is, there's something, there's several things that are very special about Isaiah and this book of Isaiah. What, what is that? Prophetic. Yeah, it's heavily in the prophetic. We're going to see that. And, of course, that's where we're going to see uh, things about the Messiah. You know, he'll talk about the Messiah, talk about miracles, talk about, uh, it, it, and it's heavily quoted in the New Testament. This is, we're going to see even a little today, heavily quoted. Anything else about Isaiah? One thing is, sometimes people call this a mini Bible because there's 66 chapters in this book, okay? There's 66 books in the Bible. 1 through 39, it's heavy because uh, Isaiah is coming and he's pronouncing uh, a coming judgment against the southern kingdom because of rebellion and idolatry. So it's really heavy on uh, a call to repentance, a call to return to the Lord, forsake the ways of you know, idolatry, the surrounding belief systems that were crowding in. And then once you get to 40, of course there's 39 books in the Old Testament, but once you get to 40 to 66, it, the tone changes a bit. It's about reconciliation, restoration. It's going to talk about the suffering servant. And, of course, chapter 40 would be the start of the New Testament if you follow 39. And, and that's where it introduces John the Baptist in Isaiah chapter 40 about one crying in the wilderness, which how the New Testament opens. And then the book of Isaiah ends with a new heaven and a new earth in chapter 65. And, of course, the Bible ends in Revelation with a new heaven and a new earth. You see what I'm saying? So it's a kind of an easy way, I'm not saying easy, <coughs> but a way to kind of, once you get the outline, you can start remembering this book a little bit easier. Any thought on any of these kinds of things? And, and this man, um, where he is located in history, uh, 740 to 700 BC, maybe into 680 BC, of course he's evangelical prophet, he's preaching, uh, particularly early on the message of repentance, uh, born into a high family, we saw last week, we saw his, his father, Amos. He has a, pro a wife, chapter 8, is called a prophetess. He has two sons whose names have special significance, we'll see that. He ministers mainly in Jerusalem uh, during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So he, it's locked in history. It's like if you were in ministry and you say, well, I started my ministry during the, uh, when Bush Sr. and then the Clintons and Bush, now I'm up here. So he it kind of locks us into history, but his main concern is what's known as the Southern Kingdom. Um, we'll get into that. This, of course, after Solomon, uh, when Solomon was reigning, you know, you have Saul, David, and then Solomon, this was united. Israel was united kingdom, okay? When Solomon dies, that's when uh, the, the <coughs> kingdom is going to be split. And who's going to come down and take the Northern Kingdom? Do you remember? Assyria. Uh, Assyria. Assyria is going to come down from up here, sweeps down, and takes them captivity. And then, but there's this demarcation line, and southern is what's known as Judah. The tribes of Judah and um, Benjamin are settled down here. And of course, the key here is Jerusalem, and it's still in a God protected, even though the northern slipped into <coughs> idolatry and everything else and went into captivity. What what I. Um, Isaiah is really dealing with and warning about is the people group that are here. Okay. I'm just kind of setting this thing and setting it up. And of course, here's just a larger, here you would have it here. And of course, Assyria is coming down, takes the northern kingdom, 
Uh, and then later, when Isaiah prophesies approximately 100 years after his ministry, he warned that captivity was coming, Babylon will sweep down, and that's when they destroy, 586 B.C. Destroy the temple, captivity goes out, and later they will be, the, the Persians will allow the release of the uh, Israelites. Remember, that's what we studied last year with Ezra and Nehemiah. Just kind of giving it. Any thoughts on any of this or questions? I'll just kind of give it a flyover. Uh, we'll get into these maps because, again, um, here's the time period, roughly 739. The ministry of Isaiah is right in this range right here. And then when you come down here, that's when Judah gets conquered, right here, 586. Temple's destroyed. Uh, it'll be rebuilt, what we call the second temple. And, of course, you go to the temple mount today, what's there? Huh? It's not nothing. Dome of the Rock and El Aqsa Mosque. And, and the platform, the 35-acre platform where the temple once stood is now leveled. It's, it's flat. Uh, and then Cyrus conquers Babylon, and he gives the permission. Remember to Nehemiah and Ezra. And thus will start this period here. When we come to roughly about 200 B.C., uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, Old Testament, the Tanakh, is translated into Greek. And uh, then Jesus is born right in, in, in here. And that's a very, very important things that are happening here. Especially, why is it important that the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, was going to be translated into Greek? Why was that significant or important for the New Testament? The language of the world. That was the language, the, what we call the market language, the lingua franca. And the, the Greek language was very good for the New Testament because it, it had these philosophical <coughs> concepts, logos, and other words that cosmos and chronology, it, it helped uh, to write the New Testament in that language, you know, even conceptually. And of course, the other thing, because Rome, once Alexander the Greek kingdom starts dwindling and Rome starts ascending 160 AD, then you have the Roman roads. The Roman roads and the Roman postal system and the Greek language were extremely important for the spread of Christianity. There was a lot of negative things happening, persecution and all these other kinds of things, but those three elements really helped in the propulsion of the faith. Any thoughts on this? Is this are, are these fans adequate or should I turn them on? We're good. Okay, everybody's good. Okay, good. Okay. I want to talk a little about this. I mentioned this last week just to set the scene. 1947, three Bedouin shepherds uh, were looking for their goats they thought were lost, and they're searching. And they go to this, these caves here, not far from the Salt Lake, you know, uh, the Dead Sea. And uh, he, he thinks the goat's in this one cave, and he throws a stone in there, and he hears clinks on something, clink, clink. And he goes in, and here there's these large pottery uh, uh, jars. And he looks at them, and he finds these uh, parchment manuscripts. Some are most parchment copies, some are in uh, vellum, you know, a sheepskin. And he doesn't think much of them, and just little shepherd. He takes them in to Jerusalem, and he sells them to some antique dealers, okay? Not sure what they are. Now, uh, what, of course, was there was every single book of the Old Testament except what book? The book of Esther. Now, there's only one book that's totally complete, total scroll complete is what? Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. Now, that's a very important point. Because up to that time, the only manuscript people actually had in hand 
was 1,000 years after Christ, where they actually had manuscripts from that time period. This is interesting. This was actually in the Wall Street Journal in 1954. Biblical manuscripts dating back to at least 200 BC are for sale. This would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution uh, by individuals or groups, or Bay Presbyterian Church, whoever wants to put them <laughs> uh, And they were selling cheap, fairly cheap on the market. Today, you can't buy the, I mean, museums and that have access to the smaller parts, but these are extremely valuable, as you can imagine. It's considered perhaps the greatest archaeological, biblical archaeological find of all time. And if you go to Jerusalem today, uh, there's the, the famous museum of the book right here. And you go inside and outstretched here is, uh, there you see it in the round, uh, is the uh, 24 feet is the manuscript, the scroll of Isaiah. What makes this interesting is Jesus opens his ministry in Luke chapter 4, reading from what book or scroll? Isaiah. Isaiah. He could have had this one in his hands. It's from that time period. I'm not saying he did, but you understand the significance. And there's, what makes the, why, why is the Dead Sea Scroll discovery so important? Other than, wow, that's interesting. Because they're always finding some artifact or historical thing like that. It shows the translations have survived. Louder. It shows the translations. What we're reading now is like almost identical or exactly identical. Okay, it showed that the translation and transmission as it goes along uh, was extremely accurate with no variance. Jots, tittles, manuscript uh, editors <coughs> make notations. Did you ever talk to somebody? They say, "Well, the Bible's been changed." Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear that? Mormons say that. Yeah, the best thing to do when they say that is hand them a Bible and say, "Where?" Um, <laughs> but here's the deal. Um, this, if we needed proof of the accuracy of the Scripture, now as believers we don't. I mean, we don't need extra proof. But this thing discovered almost the same year that Israel was to become a nation again. 47, 48 is very, very significant, okay? Um, think about Thomas. Thomas was an apostle, right? He believed in Jesus. But did he believe when his friends told him Jesus rose from the dead and they actually met him? What did he say? Uh, he was from Kansas, what? I'll believe it. I'll believe it when I see it and touch it. And what did Jesus do? Did he chastise him for that? No. He says, come here, Thomas. Remember the second? And he, this is like touching. Do you understand? You want proof? There's proof. You understand? And anyone that says the Bible's not accurate or it's been changed or it's in error, there's your proof right there. Any thoughts on this? This is a very important point. But I, I, I introduced it here in the book of Isaiah study because, again, that's the featured scroll. And if you go to Israel today, you can go in. How many have seen this? You literally walk around, and this thing is temperature curled. You can't take pictures in there. It's really, this is the treasure. Okay. Yes, please. I did want to mention about the museum. I don't know if you can go back. A little bit loud. The museum itself, there it is. Um, it's actually an interior of the jars, right, right, that's the, when they lifted the lid inside were the scrolls, and because the, it's so dry there, um, and it was preserved, and these jars were somewhat sealed, and so it preserved these copies for 2,000 years, and the community that perhaps transcribed it and kept this, the Essenes, there you can see their community, what's left, 
right there. And one of the rooms uh, is called a scriptorium. It's a long room. It's just the shell now of the stone. But there was these tables, and they actually found inkwells in there. Do you remember you guys, Ann and Beth? And, it's very interesting. Okay, let's move on. Okay, so here's where it's found. Here's Jerusalem here. Uh, here's the Dead Sea. Here's the Qumran community. Bethlehem here, kind of a deal. I just want to bring that up. Okay, so um, getting into Isaiah, let's turn to Isaiah. And if somebody could read uh, verse 1 through 3, please. Vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Jeremiah saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manager. Israel does not know my people do not understand. Okay, so here he sets it up uh, very specifically, a vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, and then he puts it in this whole idea of uh, who is the kings, who, what kings were in power that spanned his ministry. He, so it locates us in space, geographically, <coughs> at a time frame. Uh, and again, when you study the literature of the New or Old Testament, it's not written in the language of mythology or fables far, far away in a distant country and blah, blah. It's very specific. What time, period, who was in power. You understand? It really locks it in historically. What does he say in here? He says, Hear, O heaven, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Here he's calling heaven and earth as witnesses, if you will. God's bringing a case against his people Israel, almost like a court case. We're going to see this in a minute. And he's calling these two witnesses, heaven and earth. He's calling it the same thing you'll see in Deuteronomy. They swear by heaven and earth. You know, this is kind of an idea coming in here. And, of course, at the end of um, Isaiah, you'll see a new heaven and new earth. But he says, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox know its owner and the donkey its master, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Or what's he saying here in modern life? What's he saying? They don't understand. They don't understand what? Not interested. The authority? Yeah, they, we're going to see in a minute. They're very religious at this time. We'll see this later in this chapter. But it says here, they have rebelled against me. He says these animals, these are not the smartest animals either. The ox and the donkey, uh, he says, they know the master, okay? You think of a little a dog, you know, you have a dog, and he comes running, his tail is wagging, he's loyal, he's faithful, he doesn't complain, he's, you know, he, he, he's dependent on you, he trusts you. You know, everybody says you should have a dog you adore and a cat that ignores you. You know, it's, it's the idea, he's saying these animals know their master. Israel at this time does not know me. Do you understand? This is a very important point because we're going to see in chapter 1 they are very religious people. He says you go, you kept ritual, you're keeping the holy days, you're keeping this. He says it's a burden to me. Why are you doing this? Why? Because people are insufferably religious. Think about the whole world this past week. India, Thailand, America, Egypt, all these religious Rituals and festivals and you know priests and pastors and 
imams and uh, gurus and man is religious by nature really what is is God looking for more religion from man he's looking for what with man relationship. relationship see man loves religion God wants relationship Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 he goes there's coming a day when people will say Lord didn't I do this in your name didn't I do that in your name didn't I cast out demons in your name and he will say from he will say to them depart from me for I did not know you I did not have a personal relationship with you now this is a very important point because a lot of people may know about God or about Jesus but do they know God do they know Jesus do you understand this different keep your hand here but just turn ahead for a moment to Jeremiah uh, chapter 9 Jeremiah chapter 9 And maybe somebody could read verse 23 and 24 loudly, please. Rather, let him be glorious, glory in this, and in his prudence he knows me. No, uh, start with 23, I'm sorry. Start with 23 and 24. Sorry. 23 sets it up. That's why I like 23. Thus says the Lord, let not... Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord, Behold, the days are coming. Okay, that's fine. Thank you. But do you see what he's saying here? What is the chief aim of man? Because really, this man is not bad. I mean, if he's wise, powerful. Think of the rich young ruler. He's got all these qualities that aren't necessarily sinful in themselves, are they? But he says, what is the real essence or purpose? Or if you're going to boast in anything, boast in what? That you know and understand God. You see? For example, do you think uh, Saul, before he was Paul, was a religious man? Do you think he kept the vows? Temple, sacrifice, on and on, fill in the blank, right? He was extremely religious. What didn't he have? He didn't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and he'll admit it. And that's why he'll say, I always like the way Paul does it, he says, I'm not even going to tell you about my background. I'm not going to boast of my background. I'm the tribe of Benjamin, a rabbi after this. He goes through his whole resume. He says, I'm not going to tell you about that stuff. He says, he's real cute how he does it. But he says, this I one thing I do. He's considered the greatest missionary ever. Even in missions today, we study his methods, strategy, team building, everything. But his goal in life was what? He repeats it several times in the epistles. You remember what it was? Pardon me? I want to know him. I want to know him. And the fellowship of his suffering, the power of his resurrection. At the end of his life, before he's martyred, he says, I know whom I believe in. And I persuaded he's able. He, his whole thing was to know Christ. Because the more he took care of the depth of his relationship with Christ, the more Jesus took care of the width of his ministry. I mean, this guy was at the end of his, he wanted to go to the edge of the Roman world, which was Spain or 
Gaul or Britain, wherever. But that was, but his whole deal was, I want to know Christ. See, many of us can be so caught up with the work of the Lord, we can forget the Lord of the work. Do you know what I mean? We're going to see that in chapter 1. Any thoughts on any of this? We're just moving through yesterday. Well, two things. First of all, Israel had no excuse for not. Because God revealed Himself, mm -hmm. it's not like they had to hunt, search, and find Him. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, when He says no, it's not just like mentally no; it's an intimate no. And even when they talk about a husband and wife, they use the word no. So it's it's an intimacy, not just a knowledge. Yeah, right. It's that union. You know that if you abide in Me, or the vine and the branches, or the marriage metaphor, it, it always has this idea. of of intimate and and Adam knew his wife yes. and she conceived and bore a son. You understand that principle of intimate union. Again, a, a lot of people can be extremely religious. Think of Nicodemus, John chapter three. What was his background? Who was he? He was he was a teacher of Israel. He was a rabbi. He was a leader. You think he was moral? Yeah, probably. He recognized Jesus as someone special. He says no man could do this stuff unless he was sent by God. He, you know, What's the first thing Jesus says to him right out of the gate? Be born again. You must be born again. You know, I could see him saying that to the woman at the well of Samaria, but here he's saying it to this high religious, moral leader, and he says, you must be born again. Any thoughts on this? It's very important. Yes, please. Well, here at the beginning of Isaiah, where we're talking about it, he calls them children, and he's their father through being born again. Well, yeah, I mean, let's face it. Israel has a special relationship with God. When he chooses Abraham, that's his people. Okay, we understand that. He calls them my children. That's why he says, you've rebelled against me. And later he'll call them, uh, he'll compare himself to, the, the, you're my wife. Remember the whole thing with Hosea? But you've went astray. Uh, you went a spiritual adultery. You know, and, he, and the whole thing with Hosea and Gomer with this, you know, kind of bring her back. But it's this idea, but... The deal here is God wants inward religion that's expressed outwardly. All these things we're going to see in chapter 1 that they were doing are not bad things as long as you take care of the heart first. For example, the Pharisees. What did they say the day Jesus healed the blind man by the temple in John chapter 9? Do you remember? The guy was blind from birth. How could you do that? You may put mud on his thing, you know. You worked on the Sabbath. What about the poor guy that didn't see for all? <laughs> because they were more concerned with the jot and the tittle of the law. Jesus would end up saying, you know, you strain at a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Yeah. And God, God, God clearly says obedience is better than sacrifice. Sacrifice is good when we're obedient. It's necessary, you know, in the Old Testament. But that's the stage here. Okay, let's proceed. Now he says this, verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Look at the descriptive phrases. A brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. Remember that title, the Holy One of Israel. He'll use it 26 times, and this will be extremely important in the New Testament when that's applied to Jesus. You can't have a bunch of Holy Ones, so to speak. There's this specific Holy One, title for God in Isaiah, We'll, in later course, we'll see how this applies uh, to our Lord. He says, you have turned backward. Uh, you, he's saying, here's where the judgment warning. Verse 5, uh, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. 
the whole heart faints. From the sole of your foot, even to your head, there's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises, putrefying sores, they have not been closed or bound up or sued. What's his diagnostic on, on Israel, the southern kingdom at this time? Huh? It's a sad situation. Now remember, by this time, the northern kingdom has already been, because of their rebellion, they've already been, but he's kind of warning the southern, yes, Ed. I'm sorry, who's back to the head? What verse was that, sir? Uh, verse Six. starts with four down through five. But this has application to us today. If you just keep a finger here and go to Romans for a moment, Romans chapter 3. And this is where Paul is establishing who is in this condition. Notice it's from head to foot. He talks about their head all the way down to the soles of their feet. There's no wholeness, there's no health. Look at Romans chapter 3 just for a moment. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9 through 18. If somebody would read that, please. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 18. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already been made in charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all over sin. As it was written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have turned together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that's New Testament. What's the condition of man here? Very similar. A sinner from head to foot. And that's why the gavel comes down in the same chapter, verse 23, what he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why we need, <coughs> how can we be made righteous? You understand? How can we, what can we do? And that's why we need this, a Savior, which Isaiah will introduce to us, but that's why it says of Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin, for us that we might become the right there's the great exchange and we'll get into that later any questions on this or insight you want to add to this Isn't you, there a picture of Job too? pardon me the picture of Job yeah you're saying the sores and yeah and I mean oh, they used to even blind people in particular and leprous people back then they thought were um, that was an indication of yeah. sin you see because they were untouchable and they had sores visible well that in a sense is a is a picture of man, you know, like Lazarus in the tomb, the, the leper or a blind person, you know. And that's why Jesus, when he comes, when he touches the leper, that, that's like, that's, in that context, a rabbi touching the, when he touches the leper or he touches the corpse, uh, you know, and this is amazing. Jesus touches the leper, but he doesn't get leprosy. He's all holy, he's the holy one. Just like sunlight can come through that window today, the window could be dirty and smudged, but the, will, will the purity of the light change? No, you might not see it as clear, but the purity of light is untainted. Same way with Jesus. He can come and walk amongst us in this fallen world, deal with sinners and that, but he doesn't collect the sin. You understand? He doesn't, he doesn't, be, he became, he carries sin, he doesn't become sin. You know, do you understand what I'm saying? So we're going to see how Isaiah ties into the present day. Okay, we'll go back to Isaiah. Now he says, um, and then he speaks to the individual. He's going to speak to the country now. Verse 7. Uh, 
He says, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Perhaps he's referring now to the northern, because they, again, are, it must look like a wasteland after Assyria came through. Uh, strangers devour your land in your presence. It is desolate, overthrown. Uh, see, the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard. You know, they just had these little booths. They were very vulnerable. They were shelters in the old days. A hut uh, in the cucumber field. Unless the Lord of hosts had left a very small remnant, you would have become like Sodom, and you would have become like Gomorrah. In other words, God always has a remnant. Do you understand this? He always has this, and he, because of that, he says, otherwise it would have been scorched earth. What does Sodom and Gomorrah indicate? It's just scorched earth. You know, gone. He says, that's not the case here. I'm still working with you. I'm going to bring you along, even though destruction is coming, 96 years from his prophecies with the Babylonians. Nevertheless, I have a remnant. I believe God always has a remnant. You know, Sometimes it, it expands, you know, it really grows. If you study church history, you see that. Uh, think of America, the great, uh, not just the revivals, but the awakenings in the 17th century, the 18th century. Towns and villages were literally changed. Bars closed, taverns closed, people repented, they paid back debts, all, you know. So we've had that, it started with a small group, but then it could expand. That, that's the beauty of potentiality in the redemptive plan of God. Now he says, um, Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Look what he calls them, these titles. You rulers of Sodom, give ears to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He already said he would destroy them like Sodom. Now he's saying you rulers are like that. Uh, now look at, if somebody read verse 11 uh, through 13, please. He's going to give this religious overview of their practices here. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of fat and fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incest is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. You have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Thanks, Ed. Good inflection, too. Um, Let's <laughs> see, I got these professional speakers. What, what, what are they doing right religiously? Is there anything they're doing that's wrong in the religious, ritualistic no. sense? No. They're keeping Sabbath, New Moon, of course, Passover, Feast, offerings, prayers, incense, which suggests temple. None of this is bad, but what? Their heart. Their heart is far from the Lord. That's why he says, when you pray, I will not hear you. If I regard iniquity in my heart, Psalm 66, the Lord will not hear me. See, it doesn't matter how long we pray, how many sacrifices we make. They are on what you would call uh, spiritual autopilot. Our forefathers did this, we did this. It, they're, they're doing it, but it has no real effect on their, their, who they are as a character, who they are as people. Do they take care of the poor? Are they living pure lives? Are they, are they into bribery? Do you Could this apply to us today? Yeah. How? Oh, yeah. How? Go to church on Sunday. Louder, please. Go to church on Sunday. Go to church on Sunday. Say the Lord's Prayer. Say the Lord's Prayer. Take the sacrament. 
sacraments, communion, you know, baptism. On, on, on. Huh? Do all good. These are all good things, okay? But our heart can be far from the Lord. And we are unspiritual, what I call spiritual autopilot. We're just doing it because we did it. And we train the next generation just do this. That's why when Jesus comes, even with food, they were questioning him on, isn't that unclean? Which He says, it's not what goes in a man's that in his mouth that defiles him. And what comes out? Thievery and bribery and adultery and all this other kind of stuff. What's going on in the inner man? I mean, this is very clear. These warnings back here have application to our life today. That's why I always quote Romans 15, verse 4, which says, whatsoever things were written before time were written for our benefit. Okay, there's things in here, principles, truths, warnings, promises, admonitions that have direct application to our life today. Yes? I'll show you an example. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm sorry, Re Revelation chapter 2. Big difference. Yeah, last book of the Bible. A <laughs> little bit. Not much you'll see, though. Revelation chapter 2. This is where Jesus comes and he inspects the seven churches. Revelation chapter 2. Okay. And he says this. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. Who has it? Uh, if you could read 1 um, through one through 3, please. Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 3. Yeah. Write, this, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. Okay, thank you. How would you describe that church just in those three verses? Good church people. Good church people. What are they doing right? What are some of the things they're doing right? They're theologically sound. Not only that, they have a discernment. They say there's some that crept in among you. They say they're apostles. Joseph Smith. Bring them young. You know, Muhammad. They're not. You know they're not. Okay. Bobby? Good works. They're into good works. They endure hardship. They can press through it. Remember, of all the letters, all the churches in the New Testament, the letter to the Ephesians has no real rebuke, like the one to Galatia and Corinth. They are spiritually, uh, some call it the Swiss Alps of the New Testament, but he, that's a very spiritual church, probably 30, 40 years prior to when this, this is being written, written here. But they're doing all these good things, but nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left what? Your first love in the inner. Why do you do these things? What's your motive? Why, why are you doing this? Or are you on kind of like cruise control? You just do it because it's the thing to do. We should go to church. I mean, we should put money in the bed. We should, you know, but where's my heart? Maybe I'm judgmental or critical or gossip or lust. Or, what does all this other stuff matter to God? He, you know, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the money in the stock market. What, what is it, you know? that to him but if we're right and we do these things then what we're doing is very powerful and spiritual 
Somebody had their hand up. Okay, he says this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come and quickly remove the lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So he gives this admonition. Remember, return, and repent. Compare this to a marriage. That's, they're, they're, you know, the kids are raised, they're paying the bills, they paid off the mortgages, but there's no love there anymore. They're like partners living in the same house under the same roof. And this admin, and again, Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. But this can apply right now, right here. Do you understand? If our motives aren't there anymore, what I like about this is Jesus just doesn't say, forget it, wipes them off the table. No. He says, I, I encourage you, I admonish you, do this. I want to see you get back to the beginning. I want to see you have a new start. Do you understand? Same thing Isaiah is doing uh, with uh, Judah in chapter, well, actually through the whole book of Isaiah. It, it's, God's intent is not to judge and to pour out wrath and to catch us when we misstep. Or, you understand? Some people have that image of God. He's just waiting to club us kind of a thing. Gotcha. gotcha you, know. you know, there you, you know. No. The Bible clearly says God is not willing that any should perish, but what? That all may come to repentance. This is in the Old Testament. As I liveth, saith the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's not, what more can he do? If the Bible is true, and God sent his only begotten son to come down and live amongst us, fulfill prophecy, <clears throat> say words that no man other, I don't want to go preaching here, no other man has ever said, did miracles that no man ever did, crucified for no, absolutely no reason under the sun, totally innocent, even his people against him say, I can find no fault with this man. And then goes through all that, and he freely offers, just like he did on the cross, Father, forgive them for that. If he's offered us that free gift of salvation, every single day that gift is out there, and your name is on it, and my name is on it, and all he's saying to as many as received him, to them he gave the power or the privilege to become a child of God. What more can God do? I mean, at the very least, if you go, you want to find the grave of Muhammad, you go to Medina. You want to see what's left of the Buddha after they created You can see bones in Ceylon and Thailand. You want to go see the prophet uh, Joseph Smith and go to Illinois. You want to, yeah, go to Jerusalem, go to the Church of the, Help, Church of the Holy Spirit and check out the tomb. It's empty. It's empty. That's, these are historical facts, folks. You know, what more can God do to draw us? Maybe somebody has a suggestion. I'd like to hear it. <laughs> but do, do you understand what I'm saying? Why would this man impact uh, human culture and civilization? Think about it. You know, in my travels, I've been blessed to be in places and see hospitals and AIDS hospitals, leprosy, literacy, hospitals, nurseries, schools. Why was Harvard, Yale, and Princeton started? Our best schools, some of our best schools, not for football, but some of our best schools were started to teach the Bible to men that would teach the Bible. Think about it. And it's all based on a 33-year-old itinerant carpenter preacher in the backwoods side of the Roman Empire who gathers around himself 12 people we would have never picked if we were starting a business. Huh? Why is it 2,000 years later our very birthdays are based on his birthday? You know, think about it. Okay, let's go back to Isaiah. We'll move through this. Okay, okay Isaiah, we're doing good. Okay. Now, 
Look what his, he, he's pronounced this diagnostic, this pathology. Here's what you're like, people. Here's what you're like, Judah. You know, your rulers are like this. But look what he says in verse 16 and 17. <coughs> Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Do you see what he's doing? Look at the adjective. Look at the verbs there. Wash, put away, cease, learn, seek, rebuke, defend, plead. He, he, if you, if I, I won't do it today, but you could put up all the things that were wrong in the previous verses, you know, your tongues are evil, you do this. And now here's the positive. He wants these people to be a transformed people of God. And the deal is, if you know your God, if you believe in your God, believing, your behavior will change. See, belief determines behavior. Belief determines, most all religions want to change behavior. And they don't go to the inner core. Pray five times a day, don't eat pork, don't do this, wear that, wash there, do this. You know, am I right? It's just what it is. But this, the, the whole thing with the Christian faith is change the inner man, the heart, and then our behavior should change. And we should be doing these things. Having compassion, learn what is good, seek justice, put away, as Paul would say, lay aside every way to sin that's so easy. Wash yourselves, you know, this idea of cleansing. It's not conceptual stuff here. He's given really specific behavior changes. It's just like if we accept Christ and we're born again, our behavior <coughs> should change. Should it not? Mm -hmm. If we're not a transformed people, what is, what is it all about? We're just, it's just a club. I'm just a nice club, don't get me wrong, but we're just a club that happen to get together. But if this is about transformation, that count me in. That, that's the deal. Uh, Jesus says, it says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things are gone, all things are created new. That's the deal. Really, that is the whole purpose of this course, is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Let us grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we should be, all of us should be different people when we leave this class in May than we are today. Because we're learning from Isaiah by way of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Michael. So does this transformation we're talking about, you know, that's beyond salvation, is that you know, more of a synonym with sanctification, that process? Yeah, yeah, go on, you can give an example if you would. No, I'm just making oh, yeah. sure I'm on the right track. No, no, you're exactly right. And that's what he's kind of itemizing here as a sanctified life. Sanctified, where we get the word saint, uh, or a sanctified vessel. What was a sanctified vessel in, in Jerusalem? Remember? It was meant for, it was separated and meant for holy use in the temple. That's why, remember, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, they got in so much trouble in Babylon when they pulled out the holy. It's separated. So to be a sanctified person or saintly, we're, we're set apart for God's usage. You're like vessels filled with the Holy Spirit. But a transformed, to your point, Michael, we're sanctified. The new birth is an event, okay? Born again, you're saved. But it's a little like marriage. Marriage, the wedding is an event. It might only last 15 minutes when you exchange vows. But marriage is a lifetime, hopefully for the better, right? So, too, Christianity, the, the, becoming a Christian is an event when you accept Christ as your Lord and say, you know, okay, you can go back. 
40 years, whenever that happens, part of your test. But your sanctification is a lifelong process. So you have salvation, sanctification, what's known as glorification. So it's you? a leave and cleave. Please? So it's a leave and cleave. Leave your old life and you know, to the new. Exactly right. And he will change us. I mean, don't forget, we have powerful resources to change. It's not like it's going to be our effort. I mean, we, can, we, we cooperate with God as, and the Holy Spirit as we follow the Word of God, but he's empowering us to do it. We didn't have that power before. You know, that's why, we, you know, when people turn over a new leaf or make a New Year's resolution, usually two, three weeks out, they're, they're gone. You know, because because they weren't empowered. But if we have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God and we have fellowship, other other people to help us, we can grow. You know, we can grow. Pursuing holiness, being renewed day by day. Yeah, that's what it says in Second Corinthians chapter four. Although the outward man is 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 decaying. How many know the outward man is decaying? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> okay. Wait, I just, I don't want to. But the inward man is being renewed day by day by day. You see? In a sense, we're getting younger. I, I've never spoken to senior citizens about this. I, think, I said, I think scripture, like, approved you're getting younger than it. They go, really? But, it, but look at it. We should be growing in childlike trust. We should be grown in childlike innocence. We should be grown in childlike purity. We should be grown in childlike dependence upon our Lord. We should be growing like a little child says, hey, my daddy, you know what he could do? You know, we should be growing. And I'm just saying, it doesn't mean we're sinless, but we should sin less. More and more and more as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ. Somebody had a thought on Yes, please. Yeah, Cynthia. A comment. Um, you know, as you're speaking, John, I'm reminded about Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, where God talks about taking our hearts of stone and turning them into a heart of flesh and putting his commandments within us and causing us to follow them. Regardless, this whole process is up to the Lord. And I think I know I can easily start to think, well, I need to read the word more, and I need to do this more, and I need to become more when really it's his work through the Holy Spirit and his word. Right? Well, yeah, yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense it's God working in you, where Paul would say he's working in you. But God also says to us, like in Colossians 3, put to death these things. And then he goes to, that's not God's part. That's our part. And a lot of us don't live a victorious Christian life because we're not putting to death we're not we're not participating with God's plan for our life, and and we're we're instead of running the race, we're we're shuffling along with some ball and chain of past habits and sins that Paul says lay aside every weight of weight of sin. So you're right, Cynthia. He he empowers us, he guides us, but he also expects us to cooperate. When Jesus says, "If you want to follow me, do what? Pick up your cross and follow me, and die daily." Now, that's on us. He'll give us the empowerment to do it. He'll give the instruction to do it. He'll give people in our lives that we can follow, as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. But there's, there's some things we can't do. We cannot save ourselves. Okay? We cannot uh, forgive all our sins. We cannot uh, put our name in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's only things Jesus and God can do. Okay? Great. But there are things he wants us to do. And you see where people fail to do that in the, um, the epistles 
where Paul will say, um, Demas has forsaken me, having loved the present world. First uh, Timothy. Well, he was with Paul. He was on there. But he, God was doing a work in his life, in Paul's life. But he pulled back, and he started going back. That's on him, not on God. Does, like that makes sense. Like yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. And we have to learn about the cross. That's big when you come to discipleship. Because when you think of the cross, here's the vertical beam, okay? That's man's relationship to God, this direction. Here's the horizontal beam, man's relationship to man. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus said? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's the thing. When I pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If I know God's will is this, and my will, John Murtha's will is, hey, I got a bad anger. I'm an Irish. I got this propensity to, you know, well, it <laughs> doesn't matter. If this is God's will and this is my will, if I die to that, that's the cross. You understand? That's the cross. Die to self. Our problem today as Christians, we would rather wear a cross than bear a cross. <laughs> I mean, I'm pointing at Yes. Well, and also, when you think of that, that picture of the cross, you also have to remember, at the foot of the cross, everyone's equal. Mm -hmm. All ground is equal. And that's the other thing Jesus did in this horizontal. When he says, when it says in the epistles, there's no Greek, no Jew, no Scythian, no barbarian, that is a, in the Greco-Roman world, they were very conscious of status and power. And when Jesus comes and he levels all that ground, really, we as the Christian community should be... Uh, an embracing community you know I mean we should with ethnicities and races and we should be we should be a community within a larger community the world that's displaying where Jesus says they'll know you're my disciples by what your bumper stickers what by the love and I've worked with Muslim for several years now and they're open to apologetic reasons and this reason, but you know one of the reasons they come to Christ time and time again, you know what they say? They felt the love of God in the, in the, in the fellowship. They felt the love of God. Am I right? It's just, it's just what it is. Any other thoughts on this? Okay, so now he says this, and I'll start wrapping it up here. This, to me, this is one of the, the, the key verses in the entire Bible. If, if you're given to memorizing verses, memorize this verse. I think it captures the heart of God and our human condition. And the, the heart of Isaiah. Look what he says. Verse 18. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Remember, he opened, God opened up, Isaiah opened up this by saying, God said, you don't know me. What does this verse tell you about God? What does it tell you about God? What, what mental picture comes to you when you, see, when you see this phrase, come, let us reason together? What, what, do you catch them? Arms outspread? Think of the prodigal son. When he comes up that dusty road and his father's out there looking for him, who runs to who in that Luke 15? The father runs to the son. Okay. What, is the, what does the son have to commend himself in, the, in his father's eyes? What's he look like? What's he done? What's he done to the family name? 
Really bad stuff. How does he smell? Pretty bad. I'm just. <laughs> What is the fun? The son knows that too. He's repentant. That's what's happening here. Come, let us reason to come back to me. The, what does the father do? There's about four verbs there. He runs to. He sees him. He runs. He hugs and he kisses him before he starts giving the ring, the robe, the feast, and everything. Makes you wonder why the kid left the home in the first place. But I'm just saying. See that? That's the love of the father. That's a picture of our Heavenly Father. He does not want to judge. He does not want to pour out his wrath on us. He wants us, like right here, come, let us reason together. How many know the Christian faith is a reasonable faith? That's why Peter says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. It's a reasonable faith. That people so he says here, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, back at that time, one of, this was one of the deepest colored dyes that they put into fabric, scarlet. Matter of fact, if you look at uh, Revelation chapter 17, the great harlot, she rides, she rides on the beast, and what color of clothing is she wearing? Scarlet. Uh, think of Nathaniel Hawthorne. What book did we have to read in English? The Scarlet Letter. You know, the big scarlet. It's deep. It's, it's the, it, it, it can't be cleansed. It can't be washed out. But here he's saying what? It shall be what? White as snow. Snow comes down from heaven. Pure. Gently. Settling on the ground. Like our Lord. He came down from above. Pure. Gently. Settling on the ground. Okay? You'll never look at uh, snow again. Look at these two vehicles. What do they have in common? I'm going to close on this. Wheels. Okay? Value. One is really decrepit, terrible, no intrinsic value, nothing. This one's in much better shape, much more eye-catchy. But what if it starts snowing? <laughs> which, is the, which is the really terrible junk car? Which is the really good car? You know, before we came to Christ, some of us were more junk cars than others. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but look at after we cleanse by the blood of the Lamb. What does it say in the book of Revelation? All believers have what kind of robes? White. Translucent, radiant white robes. Why? Because they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't it good when God looks at us, if we've been forgiven, he sees that snow covering that old, that old life we had. Amen. Important to remember this. That's why I, I don't mind the snow. It always is a reminder for me. But that's this whole idea. And then he'll say this. Uh, though they be like crimson, they shall be like wool. He's bringing up, again, the wool, the lamb. You know, the wool, the lamb. And now we're the lamb. Because of the lamb of God that was slain for us, we can become part of the, the shepherd's flock. Uh, but notice, this is the heart of Isaiah. Really, even though he's pronouncing judgment, impending invasion, and doom, you see these recurrent themes of an outstretched hand. Repent. Come back to me. It's not too late. Come back to me. But there is a wrath to come. Just like today, we have to preach the love of God, but we also have to preach the holiness of God. We have to preach the grace of God, but we have to preach the wrath of God. You know, you can't lean all the way on this side or all the way on that side. You have to know God and his whole attribute character. To understand that is to understand the cross. At the cross, we see the depths of man's sins and the heights of God's love. So, I'll close on that. Yes, please. Like our culture is telling 
telling us, oh, it's a disease, I'm born this way, or I'm, I'm born this way. So a lot of the culture wants to change God's word to make that be yes. okay, but really the bottom line of everything is, yeah, we are born that way. We're all born sinners. That's the key. We're all in need of a Savior. So yes. it's not about changing what God's word says. It's about coming to the Lord. It's about God changing us. Yeah. Transformation with God, with the blood of Jesus, that, that's really the answer for everybody. Yeah, the, right? everybody comes into this world fallen. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not that we need an, an improved version of ourselves or a 2.0 version of it. No, we, Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead to make nice people nicer. He came and died on the cross and rose from the grave to make dead people alive. That's the gospel message. All other religions have a code of conduct or whatever, whatever, you know, do this, do that, don't do this. Some of decent moral codes. I knew Buddhists and Muslims had decent, but that's not the issue. When Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, what did they have the knowledge of? Good and evil. So if man was to think up a religion, what elements do you think might be in there? Good and evil. Fallen man trying to figure out a fallen world will always come up with what kind of answers? Fallen. To go to your point, all have sinned and come short of the glory. We're all sinners. We all need a savior and we need transformation. We'll pick it up next is, week. But the good news is the gift is for all. The gift is for you all. Just have to take it. Whomsoever will. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Again, he, he doesn't want to judge and, and pound. But if we keep moving away from God, moving away from God, because he created us as free moral agents with that free... We, we move, you know, we move away from God's love and what he intends for us. Any closing thoughts before we close? Okay, okay. Um, did I send the clipboard around? Yeah. All right, who would like to close us then in a word of prayer, please? Not all at once, though. I don't want to use it. I just want to. Thank you.